Good morning. It's great to be with you. I'd invite you to turn your and your Bibles, or I guess turn on your Bibles, to First uh, John chapter three. First John chapter three. And as you're turning there, let me just rush to say uh, what a privilege it is to be with you this morning uh, here in the first state, right? Yeah, you don't seem too convinced. And the home of the most ferociously intimidating mascot in college athletics, right? The blue hens. There it is. One, one proud blue hen in the crowd. The rest of you have that appropriate Delaware subduedness. We don't get too fiery in Delaware. Now, I just want to say, you can talk to your preacher, okay? So if you, if you feel led by the Spirit, you want to talk to me as we're preaching, go for it. Um, I don't know if that works in Delaware, but there are parts of Kentucky where that's how this rolls. So um, feel free to talk back to me as we go. First um, John chapter 3. Let me read just this first verse into your hearing, and then we will uh, walk through it together and see what God would have for us this morning. This is what John writes to you and to me by the Spirit. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. One verse that has an eternity of truth for us. One verse that I want to this morning with you, kind of by God's grace, I pray, I hope it will kind of like a sponge over your heart, just kind of drip gospel truth on it, so that when you and I leave here, you and I will be confronted in a maybe powerful way with God's great love for us in Christ. And, and here's my kind of big idea behind this. I mean, I've, I've tagged this text, what kind of love is this? A question, what kind of love is this? Because I think the, the idea lurking behind this statement from John is that you and I need to not only know the theological content, so to speak, or the truth proposition attached to the love of God. No, we need to know far more than that. We need to personally appropriate or experience, we might say, what this love of God is all about. I'll give you an illustration just to kind of give you the contrast between those two. It's one thing for you to know cognitively that somebody loves you, but it's another thing to experience that love in its fullness. Um, George, is a, as you heard, he's with me, he's traveling with me, and so one of the part of the experience when I travel is I'll get messages on my phone from my nine-year-old daughter, who's, she'll be very quick to tell you she's almost ten, uh, who is the most precious little girl who's ever walked on this planet, and she'll send me text messages from her mother's phone, by the way, uh, and it says, you know, I love you, Daddy. I miss you, Daddy. I love you. And, you know, it's, it's emojis and panda bears somehow are in there. I don't know how, what panda bears have to do with, with it, but it's just, it's just wonderful. I mean, I just, I love getting those messages. But as much as those messages communicate something to me about her love for her father, it doesn't replace, it can never compete with what happens when I get home and I get to the airport or I walk through that door into our house and I hear, Daddy's home! And I hear those feet run down the hallway, and I see that little blonde head come around, and she wraps her little arms around my knees, and she hugs me, and she says, oh, Daddy, I love you. It's, it, there's no text message in the world that can compete with that. 
Why? Because there's, a, there's an experience of that love that is far beyond just some message in a text. Well, this morning we're going to consider the love of God. And the point of this passage, of this, this one verse that you heard, and I would argue of Christianity in general, is that the love of God is more than just a proposition to be studied or analyzed. It is an experience that we are called to enter into by His grace. So two big questions. If you're a note taker this morning, uh, you'll enjoy this. Uh, two big questions. That's it. What is the love of God? What is it? And secondly, how does it transform us? What is it and how does it transform us? Okay, let's look at what it is. And we're just going to tick through, through this passage, a few of the attributes or the characteristics of God's love that are laid out for us. And, and we're going to uh, try to understand them from a biblical framework. Well, first of all, John says it's an otherworldly love, an otherworldly love. Notice how he puts it. The English translators that you probably are reading from in your copy of God's Word put it as what kind of love? See what kind of love the Father's given to us. Well, that, that's a good translation. Literally, if we were going to take the original language and, and give you the most literal translation, it might be something like, from what country, race, or tribe? Maybe the 2020 paraphrase would be, from what planet or galaxy does this love come from? It is so distant. It is so strange. It is so different from the love that you and I know. It's a love unknown to us and foreign, we might say, to the human heart. This kind of love, John is saying, is not natural to you and to me. If you want to know what this love looks like, you can't look in the mirror, you can't look around the world. The world has no way of framing or understanding the essence of this love and what makes it so remarkable. It's not a love that originates within us. It's a love that comes from outside of us, beyond us. John Stott, an English theologian of the last century, put it this way, it's as if the Father's love is so unearthly, so foreign to this world that John wonders from what country it may come. It is completely alien to you and to me. Now, we could spend the whole hour just reflecting biblically from Genesis to Revelation the many dimensions to the otherworldliness of God's love, the, the many ways in which God's love is so different from the love that you and I know to be natural to us and to this world. Let me give you just one of those dimensions by way of example. One of those. I'll start it by this way by asking you a question. What is it that prompts you to love someone or something? What, what is it that kind of sparks love in your heart for someone or something. Think about that for a minute. Someone you love, something you love. Well, I want to take you back to a 1600s, 17th century pastor in England, a guy named Thomas Goodwin. Here's how he put it. And sometimes these guys don't always translate well into 2020. This guy actually does. Here's how he puts it. The creatures, that's you and me, the creatures love because things are lovely. And there must be motives to draw out that love that is in them. You get what he's saying. You love something because the thing that you love has properties or qualities that are lovely to you and that draws your love out of you for it. But when God loves, he says, he loves as from his own heart. 
When God loves, He loves us from His own heart. What's He saying? Saying that God's love is not sparked or induced because of the lovely qualities of the object of His love. There's nothing, the recipient of God's love, there's nothing in the recipient or the object of God's love that is particularly lovely or love-worthy. No, God's love originates from Himself, it pours out of Himself, it is completely self-initiated, self-prompted, self-generated. Now, you may think, well, that's an interesting metaphysical or, or, you know, philosophical or theological point to be made, but I want to argue to you, it has huge practical implications for you and for me in the Christian life. Why is this so significant? Well, let me give you another illustration. You don't know me well, and maybe as you're getting to know me already, you're, you're judging my sanity, but I love ice cream. I love ice cream. I think ice cream is the perfect food. It is a superfood. Um, now, I realize you're not supposed to eat sugar, and you're not supposed I know that, but it, it is a superfood. Why? Because the, this, the qualities. Let me tell you something about ice cream. It's the perfect… Com- I know some of you haven't tried it. No. You can eat it year-round. You can eat it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You can eat it anytime. You can have it in a dish on a cone. Why? Because it's the perfect combination of, of temperature and taste and the way the fat from the cream mixes with the sugars and it coats the roof of your mouth. And you can have a fruity one. You can have a chocolatey one. You can have chunks in it. You can have it without chunks. Ice cream is amazing. It has all these qualities about it. Now you're really judging me. Uh, okay. It, it has all these amazing qualities that make me love it. There's the amen. Some of you are going to have ice cream now today, aren't you? But the love of God is different. God's love is not induced or dependent on your qualities. His love flows freely from Himself. And the moment you come to terms with this, you're at the right beginning. If you think that God's love for you is dependent on you, then you're lost. The gospel, we'll see more about this in just a moment, but the gospel is the good news that God loves us first when we did not love Him. There's nothing particularly lovely about you or or about me. In fact, quite the opposite. This is otherworldly love. Look at the world around us. The world says, oh, we fell in love in college, right? You hear that? Well, we fell in love here. We fell in love. I I love this. I love this team. I love this. And if you're, if you're a Philadelphia Eagles fan, you know what it means like to have your heart broken in love, right? We, you love your Eagles, but they also break your heart, right? Amen on that one. Why? Right? Because we, we, we see something or someone and we say, well, I love that about her. I love this about him. Whatever it is, God's love is not like that. It's an otherworldly love that flows freely from himself. Second, though, it's a, a fatherly love. It's not just an otherworldly love, it's a fatherly love. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Now, John's letter, I would encourage you, if you've never read this letter, you should read it the whole way through. This one verse is picking up on themes that are throughout the letter. And one of those themes or patterns in John's writing is he uses familial language. He'll refer to his readers as children. He'll talk about us as brothers and sisters and and use all these family metaphors to describe what it's like to be part of the people of God. And and I fear that sometimes we are so familiar as Christians with this terminology of God as Father that we just kind of gloss right over it. It's just so familiar to us. 
but it shouldn't be. I mean, it's a, it's a shocking thing, in fact, when you actually stop and reflect upon what John is saying. I wonder if you, as a Christian this morning, if you have a hard time, perhaps, believing that God's fundamental disposition towards you, the, the most fundamental way in which He relates to you as His child is as a father to a son or to a daughter. That, that's not, again, that's not just kind of a, a nice sentimental picture that the New Testament gives us. No, the, the, the Word of God is telling you and me, this is the way that God relates to His people, to Christians, to those who have been, uh, who have trusted in Christ as their Lord and Savior and been brought into His family. I suspect we're actually far more conflicted about this than we even maybe are willing to acknowledge or admit with ourselves. Some of that may be because of our own experience with earthly fathers. Some of you in this room were blessed and have been blessed with wonderful, godly fathers, fathers who modeled for you what it means to protect and to provide, fathers who were never stingy with their love or their affection to you, fathers who, who worked hard for your good, fathers who uh, in every way pointed you to Christ both in word and deed. And if that's you this morning, I just want to encourage you, don't, don't fail to thank the Lord for the gift of, the, of those fathers. Don't fail to thank those men, those fathers that the Lord gave you for the work that they've done to, to model Christ for you. Maybe take an opportunity today to say thank you to those men. But that's not everybody's story. I suspect in a room like this or hearing my voice, there are others who perhaps you never even knew your father, or the one that you did know was cruel or harsh, manipulative, distant, abusive, or downright wicked. So when, I, when you hear that God relates to you, to you as, a, as a Christian, as a father does, you go, I, that's just hard for me to reconcile. How do I… <laughs> That doesn't bring warm fuzzies to mind, Lord. Let me assure you, brother and sister in Christ, from God's Word, whoever your earthly father was or was not, you and I only know shadows. If, if you think, well, I didn't have that kind of… I didn't have a faithful, kind, loving father. If I did, I probably wouldn't have all this baggage. Here's the, here's the problem, though. No matter how good your father was or how evil your father was, no matter how present or how absent he was, neither of those models is, can satisfy the real thing. Both of them are shadows. Earthly fathers, no matter how good or faithful they are, are imperfect. They will fail. They will disappoint. They will grow weary and tired. They cannot perfectly protect, and they cannot perfectly provide for their children. But the Bible assures you and me this morning that God is a father towards His children that will hear this never fail, never fail, who will never grow weary. He will never lose His children, never abandon them. He will never hurt them. He will never give up on them. He will always give of Himself for His children, and rather than using them, he will give of Himself, and He will always, always, always welcome His children home. 
even when they've wandered in a far-off country. If you're not a Christian this morning and you're here by God's grace, you've not personally trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've not turned to Him in faith for forgiveness of sins and eternal life, then I just have to tell you honestly from God's Word, you don't have the ability to relate to God this way. The only way you relate to God as Father is by being adopted into His family by His grace. Listen, friend, the the world is so confused on this, suggesting that God's, God's kind of Father to all. No, 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 the Bible is abundantly clear. If you're not a Christian, if you've not been reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ, through His sacrifice at the cross, you don't have God as your Father. But the good news is that this offer is available to all because we come in through adoption. The only way in is that way in. It's otherworldly love. It's fatherly love. Third, His, his love is a gift. Another characteristic of His love. His love is a gift. The love of God is not earned. You and I have a really hard time with this. Maybe not always cognitively, but functionally, the way we live our lives and the way we relate to God. What do I mean by this? It's not a wage, right? God's love is not a wage. It's not something you worked for. But here's the astonishing thing. The Bible makes it remarkably clear that God actually sees you and me as we really are. In fact, He knows us better than we know ourselves. And that's kind of terrifying if you think about it. Because if you're honest about the person that looks back at you in the mirror and what's going on at the level of your heart and the things that you love and the things that you live for and the things that characterize your inner monologue, you don't want anybody to know that. You certainly don't want God to know it. But the Bible says that God sees us in all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our sin, all of our rebellion, and yet He gives us His love. That's scandalous. How can He do that? How can a holy and righteous God give His love to people like you and to me? Well, let me frame it this way. Christian, are you ever still surprised, genuinely shocked that you're a Christian? Like, do you ever look back in the rearview mirror of your life and think, I can't believe that God saved me? Now, I don't care if you were converted, you were saved when you were 12 and you grew up in a Christian home, that's just as shocking, maybe sometimes even more shocking than the other stories of grace that we hear. Maybe you came to faith in Christ later in life, in college, or even in decades after that. No matter your story, it's a shocking thing that any of us would be the recipients of God's saving grace and mercy. I wonder how easily we've lost that sense of surprise that we are Christians that we've been saved. I like how Tim Keller puts this, pastor in New York. Some of you are familiar with with Pastor Keller. He puts it this way in an illustration. He says, when you log into your bank account just to check your balance, none of you on like a Friday evening, none of you look and say at payday, behold, see what manner of compensation my employer has given to me. It's a marvelous surprise. I can't believe they paid me. No, you don't do that unless you have issues. You look at your bank account and you say, I earned that. 
I worked really hard for the last two weeks or however often your pay schedule is. I earned that money. I put in the work. I did my job. And you better believe they paid me. They, frankly, they should pay me more. Look at the taxes. Look at all that came out of that. No, that's because that's a wage. You have a sense, in some sense, even an appropriate sense of entitlement to that, right? You earned it. But grace comes along, the gospel comes along and says, that's not how this works in the economy of God. His love is a gift. It's a shocking gift. So, if that's true, why are you and I so often still trying to earn God's love? Maybe think about that for just a second. Are you relating to God in a way that suggests that you need to earn His love? Well, kind of a moralistic, counterfeit Christianity, one that says that Christianity is most fundamentally about rule-keeping. Now listen, there's a lot. Read First John. There's a lot. John has a lot to say about the way we are called to live as disciples of Jesus. There is a high standard. But a counterfeit gospel tells you and me that God's love ebbs and flows for His children based on their performance. You had a good week this week? right? You read your Bible every day, God's love meter goes up. Didn't? Well, you know, it's, you're, kind of on, you're, you're on the decline, right? It's like the stock market. You, you've, you've avoided that one kind of besetting sin that you've been trying to put to death, but you can't seem to kick it, but you had a really good week. More love for you. God loves you. He really loves you this week. Now, you and I might not articulate it that way, but we relate to God functionally that way so often, don't we, in the Christian life? Our obedience is important. Our obedience is necessary, but not to merit or earn God's love. No, our obedience is the result. It's a response to God's love, never the basis for it. So ask this question maybe. If it's a gift, it would be good for you and I to know, well, how do you receive it? I mean, John's saying here, this is a love that the Father has given to us. So I can't earn it. Well, how does that work? Well, there's some interesting other passages in the New Testament. Paul, writing in Romans 5, says this, that God's love has been poured into our hearts. Poured, I love even the verb there, poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So there's the given language referring to the person of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit's been given to us and He pours the love of God into our hearts. So, in some mysterious miracle of grace, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, by giving us His Spirit, He pours His love into our hearts. Now we're getting theological, aren't we? This is massively important for the Christian life. Why is this so important? There is, in other words, I think what Paul's describing in Romans 5, a personal appropriation of the love of God that has to happen and that can only happen through the work of the Holy Spirit. It is a God-initiated act, and we are to receive it as He pours His love into His heart by His Spirit. Now, if you're here this morning, again, and you're not a Christian, this is what you most need in life. Nothing else matters more than this. Nothing. 
The love of God alone is, is capable of transforming your heart. You need God, most fundamentally this morning, to unilaterally, on His own power, move to transform your heart, filling you with His love, and thereby giving you the gift of faith so that you'd repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the Savior who brings the guilty back to God. But what about those of us in the room who've been walking with Jesus for some time, maybe for some of you many, many years? Does that work of the Spirit stop? Is that kind of a one-time only thing at conversion? Like when you became a Christian, the love of God got poured out in your heart? I actually don't think it's a one-time thing. I think Paul in Romans 5 is describing an ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. What do I mean by that? I think the New Testament expects that this pouring out of the love of God through the Spirit is the continuing work of the Spirit in the life of the Christian. You and I need daily to be filled with the love of God through the Spirit afresh. I need more of that love. I need more of that love. More, 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 right? Do any, do any of you actually feel like you need less of the love of God? I don't think so. Now, here's the great news. If that's our need and if that's what God promises to do for His children in the gospel, the good news is that God's love is a free and infinite gift that He bestows on His children. What do I mean by that? He is not a stingy or miserly father with a limited supply of love. No, friend, He is an infinite God with an infinite, vast treasure of love. There is no… you will never reach the coastline of the horizon of God's love. It never ends. There is no seabed that you'll ever get to the bottom of the love of God. No, it knows no, it knows no boundary. His love is infinite and free and wide. And because of that, it will never run dry. You will never exhaust it. It's an infinite reservoir. Now, you may not feel it every day. We're not talking about feelings here. We're talking about an objective, rock-steady truth of the universe about who God is. And He is for His children. The good news is that since God's love is a gift, He's also given it in such a way that it can never be taken away from us. If I tell you that I, you know, I'm going to give you a gift, you, well, that's great. I'm not going to give you a gift, by the way. But if I was, you know, hopefully I'm a good gift giver. But you might be wondering if it's a, really, if it's a gift of infinite value, well, you'd want to make sure it was secure, right? Because somebody might try to steal it from you or maybe you would, you would lose it. Friend, here's the good news. Because of who God is, the gift of His love is secure. You'll never lose it. Why? What do I mean by that? This is precisely what the Apostle Paul describes in Romans 8, 8, 38 and 39. You know this, that nothing in this world or beyond it, nothing seen or unseen, seen, absolutely nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. There is nothing that can separate you from His love love if you're a Christian. How does it change us? We've seen just these few characteristics about this love of God, but how does it change us? Well, that's the second half of the sentence there. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. In other words, there is a change in what we're called, John says. This love 
means that we are now called children of God. That is to say, for the Christian, your primary identity is this, son of God, daughter of God. Our culture is so confused when it comes to identity. You all walked in here this morning with all kinds of identities. You're someone's daughter, someone's brother, someone's son. You're, you grew up in this neighborhood. You went to this high school. You, I mean, just go down. You're male or female, and, and our culture is frankly even confused on that now. There are so many things swirling around us, but the Bible comes along and says whatever everything else may say, and no matter how much of it may be true, the most fundamental thing about a Christian is this. You are called a son or daughter, a child of God. No matter your background, no matter what you've done or where you've been, no matter your family name, no matter what anyone else has called you, if you're a Christian, this is the most profound, enduring, and true thing about your identity. It's because, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 1, in love God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. That's who you are. It's who you've been called. But John almost anticipates a, a problem here. He goes, he leans in a little more. He says, we, we've been called children of God. And he says, and just so there's no confusion, let me add one more layer to this. And so we are. You're not just called a child of God. You are made a child of God. Now, you might think that's just Paul being Paul. I mean, sorry, John being John. I do believe that John actually wrote this, okay? This is, you know, this, is, this is actually a really key point that John is making here. We don't just get the name, we get the character of children. Let me give you an illustration that might help this register in a different way. Uh, growing up, in, I went to high school in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I come from a long line of family members who have suffered with the Phillies over multiple generations. I never thought we'd win a World Series. We probably won't until, well, we probably just won't ever again. But that aside, I remember going, uh, maybe some of you have this memory of going to the Majestic factory up in Easton, Pennsylvania, where they would, you know, Majestic would make all their, their clothing and uniforms and stuff. And if you're a baseball fan, you know, at least until January of this year, Majestic had the contract to make all the uniforms for Major League Baseball, batting gear, batting practice gear, and all this stuff. And uh, so when I, at least back in the old days, you could go to Majestic and not just buy stuff, but you could, you could actually have them make a jersey for you. So in theory, you could go and you could get anything you wanted on this jersey, same fabric, same stitching. I mean, it could be an exact replica of it. And you could put, you know, you could, sure, you could have Darren Dalton's name on there or Nobody got Mitch Williams. Uh, that's, some of you, that's, you're too young to remember that era. Uh, but, but you could get it. Or, or you could, if you didn't want to get a, a player's name on it, you could put your own name on it, and you could put your own number, and you, and you could have a jersey that looked just like the real thing with your name, and jersey, your name and number on it. But if I did that, I mean, I'd have the jersey, but if I did that and I walked back then to Veterans Stadium and I tried to go through the player's gate and I just walked in to try to get into the clubhouse and say, I'm, I'm here, ready for batting practice, you know, see Hall right back here, the, the whole club would rightly look at me like I was crazy. 
You're not part of this team. You have no rightful claim or access to be part of this franchise, and there's no way we're letting you out on that field. And I'd say, but I got the jersey, and it's, it's got my name on it, right? Because we all know there's a radical difference from just having kind of wearing the jersey and actually being part of the team. Now, that contrast is completely inadequate to accurately represent what John's describing here. John's saying, you and I don't just get the jersey. We are brought into the team. You're put on the roster, so to speak. John is telling us that God's love for us in Christ doesn't just give us a jersey. Our identity as children, as sons and daughters, is no fiction. If you're ever tempted to think, well, I know the Bible says that, but that's just kind of religious talk. No, 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 friend. The Bible is saying this is who you really are by God's grace. You are a daughter or son of God. Our adoption is so real, so genuine, that we truly are His children. We have the relational privileges that a child has, the position that a child has as we relate to their father. That's who you are in Christ. Well, in his gospel account, John tells us, so in his, in his gospel account of, of Jesus' life and ministry, John tells us a little bit more about this adoption. So you can go read this later, but in John chapter 1, you're probably familiar with it. How's, here's how he describes this adoption. But to all who did receive him, who received Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There it is again, right? Who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, that is to say, not by natural birth, nor of the will of man, but of God. You, if you're a Christian, you have been birthed into the family of God. You're a child of God. We're not merely given the legal status of children. We're actually made part of the family, meant to share, uh, share in God's nature as heirs of eternal life. You will live forever in Christ, in glory. Now, how you and I speak of the love of God has profound implications for how we live, how we see ourselves, how we relate to God, and how we share that love with a needy world that so desperately needs to know the love of God in Christ. Even more, I think it will shape and form the way we appropriate this good news of the gospel in a day-to-day reality of our lives, right? The way it affects even our hearts and our thinking. Let me give you one example. Does God love you because Jesus died for you? Does God love you because Jesus died for you? Or did Jesus die for you because God loves you? Now we're getting into like theological weeds a little bit, aren't we? Now that question, you might think, well, that's that's a dumb question. That's something a theology professor would ask. Actually, friend, it's far more significant than you may realize. Because I think we often assume, or maybe we, we read, we, don't, we, we come to the Bible or we come to our Christian life with the assumption, well, I think Jesus loves me, and we don't even want to get into the whole theology of the Trinity here, but we think, well, I think Jesus loves me, and the Father must love me because Jesus kind of convinced Him to? Maybe Is that what's going on at the cross? Like, so Jesus died for me, and that's what kind of convinces God the Father to love me? No. I love how Sinclair Ferguson, who uh, for many years taught at Westminster Seminary right up the road and has been pastoring in South Carolina for a long time, he's a great Christian author. He puts it this way in his book, The Whole Christ. 
if you and I believe that Jesus' death was necessary to cause the Father to love us, if that's what we believe, he says, we'll have a really hard time trusting and resting in the assurance of his steadfast love. While often dormant in our souls, from time to time the thought will erupt that perhaps the Father himself in himself does not love us as the Son does. Such a disposition leads to a spirit of suspicion and even bondage, not one of freedom and joy. Then when we ask the question, who is this Father God with whom we have to do and what manner of Father is He? We may never fully escape the suspicion that He's not a Father of infinite love after all. In other words, Ferguson saying, the way you answer that question says a lot and will affect a lot about your heart and the dynamics of your heart as you relate to God. Because what's the Bible say? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. No, friend, Jesus did not have to convince God to love you. The Son did not have to die a sacrificial death to kind of manipulate the Father into loving you. No, no, no. The Father, out of His love before eternity, devised a plan to send His Son in the likeness of man to die on a cross, to be raised on the third day, and it was all fueled by love. All of it. So you, if you're a Christian, you never have to doubt for a second in this life or in eternity to come whether God loves His children. His love will never change. It can never be removed. Now, you might think if the love of God transforms us in this way, it makes us children of God, then you might think that God's children would be easy to pick out in the world, right? I mean, you would think, I mean, just the way the language John's using, you'd think, well, we'll, we would just be able to walk around and see, and the world would know these are the children of God walking among us. What a remarkable thing. But of course, the world doesn't work that way, does it? And it's almost as if John anticipates that. In the very end of the verse, that's what he's getting at here. Look at what it says. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. The world does not recognize the children of God. Now, when John refers to the world here, he's speaking of the unbelieving world, those that are opposed to God and don't believe in His Son. That's the point, by the way. Just as the world did not recognize the Son of God when He came in His first coming, so now the world does not recognize His joint heirs, His younger siblings, the other sons and daughters of God by grace. So John's saying to you and to me, don't be surprised by that. Don't be discouraged by that. Don't let that throw you off course. Don't let that undermine your confidence in the love of the Father for you. Why? Because it was the same way for your older brother, Jesus. They crucified Him. And Jesus Himself had told us, didn't He? Just as they persecuted Him, just as they hated Him, so the world would hate us. John 15, 18. But here's the thing. If you have the gift of God's love, if you have received that gift, you don't need to worry about all the rest. Resting in the love of God, delighting in the love of God, rejoicing in the love of God is liberating because it frees you and me from trying to get the love of the world for ourselves. You'll never, listen, if you're a Christian, you're never going to get the world to love you. 
You can go on to great success in your career. You can, you can have all the fame and accolades in your industry. You can be well-published. You can be well-thought-of. You might even get your own TV show. But at the end of the day, if you're a Christian, the world will never give you the love that your heart longs for. You can only find that in Christ. The love of God alone is enough. So how are we to respond to this kind of love? What, like, what do you do? And maybe you're asking, okay, so what's the, we've, we've, man, this is wonderful to sit here and reflect together on what God's Word says to us about the love of God. But give me some, now what do I go do with it? How do I live this out? What do I do practically? And we love that in our sermons. And most of the time, that's what you want your preacher to do, right? But I just got to point out to you, what's the, what's the actual command here? What are, you, what are you supposed to do with this? Well, this whole verse, if you heard it rightly, it's framed as a command, as an imperative. And it's that verb there at the beginning of verse 1. This is the command. See in the English Standard Version. The old King James says, behold. That's the command. That's what you and I are supposed to do. Take measure of this. Behold it. In other words, let the love of God transfix you. Let it capture your attention and your wonder. John here, I mean, the language is hard for us to wrap our minds around here, but John is overcome in this text. He is ecstatic. This is more than just kind of surprise at doctrinal or theological truth. No, John is moved here to ecstasy, to joy, to wonder, to delight when he reflects on the love of God in Christ Jesus. And he's saying, I want you to join with me in that joy. I want you to participate in that. I want you to behold it. I want you to see it. I want you to treasure it. It's an expression of the heart of worship. How do you do that? How do you behold something infinite? How do you behold something without limit or boundary, such as the infinite and marvelous love of God? Well, here's the good news. You never will reach the limit or the shore of God's infinite ocean of love in this life or in the life to come. You and I, Christian, you and I will spend eternity seeing and beholding and marveling at the infinite love of God. There will never come a point 10 billion years from now when you'll say, well, I guess we covered that. I guess, I guess we can move on to the next thing in our worship. No, no, no. We will spend eternity upon eternity worshiping and beholding and marveling at the love of God in Christ Jesus. And it will never grow old. You will never exhaust the wonder of it. Some of you, I suspect, may have a hard time with this. It's one thing to present you with kind of cognitive information about God's love, you know, doctrinal truth. And we, so we need that. We desperately need that in this, in this day and age. We need more doctrine, not less. But the Bible does go a lot further, and this might be hard for some of you. We have to go further. It's not just enough to have correct doctrine about the love of God. That doctrine has to drive us to devotion. That doctrine has to drive us to doxology, to worship. Christianity is about more than just doctrine, not less. There's an essential experience dynamic of experience to the love of God. Listen how Paul puts it, and this would be my prayer for you this morning. In 2 Thessalonians 3, 5, when he writes to the church there at Thessalonica, he says this, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. That's to say, your heart, 
the very center of who you are, your will, your desires, the things you love, the thing that really kind of makes you move in the way you move in life. Paul says there in 2 Thessalonians 3, it has to be pointed, redirected. It's like a compass that has to kind of get rerouted to the North Star. It needs to get rerouted in a particular direction. And in the middle of a barren wasteland of our postmodern secular culture, in the middle of uncertain times, even right now that we're living in, in the middle of relationships that will break your heart and let you down, God will direct your heart to His love. And there and there alone, you and I can find shelter from the storm. There and there alone. Why? It's because His love is enough. His love is enough. This love, this otherworldly love that surpasses knowledge is a gift of ours and a gift only by grace. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we love You. You know we love You, but You also know that we only love You because You first loved us. And we confess, Lord, this morning that our hearts are so, as we sang earlier, so prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Oh, we, we presume upon Your grace. We, we doubt Your love. And we so easily fall in love with the world. So we pray, Lord, this morning that You would direct our hearts to Your love, that you, that you would, for those that are trusting in Christ, Lord, that You would show us in fresh ways, as we've seen in Your Word, what it means to know the love of God in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we pray for ourselves as well that You would then make us bold in the world to share the good news of this love that can only be found in Christ. Oh, Lord, I pray for this congregation, for this church, that you would use them as a powerful witness for Christ in this city, in this region, and through their ministry, really all over the world. And Lord, I pray as well for anybody who's here this morning who maybe for the very first time has heard this message. Maybe it's the hundredth time they've heard it. But would you move in their hearts this morning by your Spirit so that they would place their faith in Christ they would turn from their sin and all the ways they've tried to fill that void in their hearts to look for love and acceptance and security and meaning and identity. And they would find this morning rest for their souls, rest for their hearts, an infinite supply of love that comes from your hand in the gospel. If that's you this morning, I just want to encourage you, don't leave without turning to Christ. You can pray even right now before you leave as you're sitting here, you can pray and it's just a simple prayer of, Lord, I know I need you to save me. I know I'm a sinner. I ask that you'd forgive my sins, that you'd save me. I want to give my life to you. I'm trusting in your son, Jesus, that he died on the cross for my sins and he rose from the dead and I want to live my life for him because of what you've done for me. It can be in your own words, it's however you pray it, but that's the point of the gospel. It is a response to what God has done for us in Christ, and there's freedom in that, and there is love beyond measure and comprehension in it. Lord, we, we love you. We ask, Lord, that even as we conclude our service, our time together this morning, that you are, we would lift up our hearts to you, and with our whole voices, our whole hearts, our whole lives, we would declare to you and to one another the great things you've done for us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.